Welcome to another edition of the Villanova English Department podcast. Instead of an episode where we do an interview about literary theory, we are going to be bringing you the audio from a special event that we recently held where some of our faculty members talked about the history of plague literature. And so you'll be hearing about Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, about the Spanish influenza pandemic in the early 20th century, about the HIV-AIDS crisis in the 1980s, and about apocalyptic literature in general. So this is a topical special episode. You'll be hearing from professors Joe Drury, Dean Lutz, Travis Foster, and Heather Hicks. And we will be back in two weeks with another interview about an area of literary theory. So for now, enjoy a special episode about plague literature through the ages. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Uh, this is our event uh, thrown by the English department called Plague Literature Then and Now. Um, I'm going to just uh, quickly describe the format, and then I'll introduce our speakers, and then we'll jump right in. Um, we're going to talk in all for about 20 minutes. Each of the four of us is going to speak for about five minutes. And uh, after that, we're going to have some breakout sessions. So uh, with some questions that we've decided on that you all can discuss among yourselves for a few minutes. And then we'll have a QA. and a um, You can send questions through the chat at any point if anything comes to mind that you're curious about that any of us are talking about. And at the end, uh, my co-host, Joe, will uh, moderate um, the question and answer session. So, um, oh, and incidentally, this event is going to be recorded. And right, so I'm going to introduce our speakers. Um, first of all is Dr. Joe Drury. He teaches 18th and 19th century British literature. And uh, he's teaching a course this spring called The Literature of Medicine, which he may say a little bit more about. Um, uh, our next speaker is going to be Dr. Jean Lutz. She teaches 19th late 19th and early 20th century American literature. Um, and she is not teaching an undergrad class that I can plug. But uh, our third speaker, Dr. Travis Foster, teaches uh, 19th century American literature. And he's actually teaching a 1975 course in the spring called Queer Feelings. And he's also teaching an upper level English class um, called the Early American Novel. And then I'm Dr. Heather Hicks. I'm the chair of the English department. I teach contemporary literature. And in the spring, I'm teaching a course called 20th century, sorry, 21st century American apocalypse. Um, and uh, that's gonna be a class that looks at novels written since 2000 that deal with uh, apocalyptic events on American soil. Um, and I just want to, before I turn this over to Joe, I just want to say that, remind those of you who are first year students, that sometimes you feel like you just have to fulfill core requirements in your first year. But actually, OUS, the Office of Undergraduate Studies, really wants you 
to explore areas that you're interested in. And if you're interested in uh, English classes, even upper level English classes in your second semester here, uh, they would actually encourage you to go ahead and sign up for a course if it looks like something exciting. So just remember, um, I think Joe is gonna share a whole list of our English courses for the spring uh, through the chat function. And uh, if you're interested in any of them, you should consider signing up for them. So, okay, I'm gonna turn this over to uh, Dr. Drury. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going first because I'm dealing with the first plague not the first ever plague, but the first plague that, that we are going to be talking about tonight, yeah, chronologically speaking. So um, uh, one, of the, 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 one of the books, probably the book that I'll start my literature, medicine, literature and medicine class next semester is Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, uh, which is a kind of fascinatingly um, intense account of the great plague outbreak um, in London in 1665. Which is, which is actually the last great um, plague outbreak in, in England to have taken place. Um, it killed about 100,000 people in about 18 months. A quarter of the population of London was, was killed by this disease, bubonic plague. Um, and the Defoe's journal is fascinating for a number of reasons. One of, one of which is that it's sort of generic. It's a generic curiosity. It's often called a novel because it is in fact a work of fiction that, that, that pretends to be an eyewitness account um, of this outbreak. Uh, but it's also, you know, a, a pretty authoritative historical document. It includes a great deal of factual information about what happened during the outbreak, um, about London in the 1960s. It includes a lot of real documents, including bills of mortality, which is our today's or the, or the sort of 17th century equivalent of kind of COVID death trackers that no doubt we've all spent time doom surfing over the last few months on. Um, it also includes a lot of very kind of vivid reportage as if, as if he was a journalist. Um, it doesn't really have a, a main protagonist in any conventional sense. That doesn't really have a kind of traditional plot. The plot is the course of the outbreak itself. Uh, and the main protagonist is, you know, is the people of London, the people of the city. Um, so it's a strange book. Um, what I think is, is, you know, most sort of immediately noticeable about it, and, and, and I think certainly one of the most interesting things about it, is the way it it seems both modern and old at the same time. It feels modern in the sense that it's very much, it tend, tends to be a kind of historical scientific account of this disease as far as the science went at the time. Um, it uses a lot of kind of qualitative and quantitative data in the way that you would expect a kind of modern scientific uh, um, approach would today. He kind of canvasses various modern sort of medical theories of the time. There's a lot of sifting of the sources of information to see whether they can be considered reliable. There's a lot of criticism of, of, of uh, magical, magical explanations of the, of, of the disease. Comets as uh, premonitions or portents uh, are mocked. There's a lot of criticism of kind of quack cures. And he takes very seriously the, the responsibility and the power of government to do something about these diseases. Um, on the other hand, Defoe was very much a devout Christian. Um, HF, the narrator of the story, is constantly looking for signs of, from God about what he should do. Should he run from the city or should he stay? Um, he sees the plague at various times as a kind of punishment for the wickedness of the king and his court or as an opportunity for God to punish sinners who've been living evil lives. Um, he's shocked by the atheist scoffers who laugh at him for thinking that God has anything to do with what's going on. Um, and uh, so he kind of emphasizes the natural causes of the disease, but then at the end he says, 
when the disease kind of finally you know, goes away, he says, oh, this is God. God has saved us, right? This is a providential punishment. So the, the end of the disease is given sort of a divine explanation as opposed to a natural one. Okay, I have a lot more to say about uh, uh, Defoe's Journal and the bubonic plague outbreak of 1665, but I will, uh, I will hand over now to, I think, who's next? Travis? Oh, Jean. Okay, I will spotlight you, Jean. Thank you. There you go. Okay, thanks, Joe. Okay, so I'm going to talk about, this feels like such a grim, like this march through history of disease after disease. So, okay, um, I'm going to talk about what I think we could call spectral trauma. Um, and that's what I'm going to say is kind of coming from the influenza pandemic of 1918 and 1918, 1918 to 1919, which is the closest historical parallel to the pandemic that we're currently experiencing. Um, it resulted in the deaths of somewhere around 50 to 100 million people. In the United States, more people died of the flu in those years than died in World War I, World War II, the conflicts in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq combined. Um, in Philadelphia, wagons were pulled through the streets with priests calling out for people to bring out their dead to collect corpses. Um, it was an airborne virus, just like the one that we have now. When Philadelphia had a parade to, it was a war, effort, it was to raise money for the war for World War I, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Um, when they had this parade, like 200,000 people jammed Broad Street, and um, some of you I'm sure have already heard this, but um, it was a, a place, it, a tremendous infection occurred then, and three days later, every bed in all 31 hospitals in the city um, was full. So coffins ran out, they had to dig mass graves. So you would think this would inspire, you know, a great literary set of expressions. But in fact, mass death is really hard to understand, and it's uh, really hard to write about. Uh, and Defoe's journal, notwithstanding. So, um, and in our literary history, one thing that has really happened in the pandemic is it mostly exists as a kind of spectral trauma, as something that um, we should remember, but we kind of don't. And I'm drawing here on, there's this um, book that came out this year. It was written before our current pandemic by a literary critic named Elizabeth Outka. It's called Viral Modernism. And it's about the influence of the 1918 pandemic on literary modernism. And the thing about World War I, which as you know, it was called the Great War. It was fought between 1914 and 1918. Um, and it totally overshadowed the pandemic, but it also made the pandemic way worse because, in, because of World War I, governments suppressed news about the virus. In fact, the only um, nation in Europe that did not do that, that allowed a free press to operate was Spain. And Spain's journalists reported accurately on the uh, pandemic. And for that reason, it ended up being called the Spanish flu, totally inaccurately because people thought that its epicenter was in Spain. In fact, it wasn't, but in Spain, people actually knew how bad it was. Other places, they didn't. So, um, the war also made the pandemic harder to remember harder to write about. And I think this is because the reason that the war turned the pandemic into a kind of spectral trauma, this uh, a kind of trauma that was haunting, uh, elusive, kind of like a miasma, which people by 1918 knew that bad air didn't cause the, the flu. They knew that it was germs. They, they had some idea about that. But still, they, they had this idea that it was this bad atmosphere. Epidemics themselves were kind of a bad atmosphere. And they're bad to use as metaphors. Um, as a disease, other kinds of diseases are much better to use to deploy as a metaphor because epidemics are too hard to track, they're too hard to understand, it's hard to know when they've ended, kind of. And as Judith Butler argues, uh, she's a 
really important theorist who wrote one book called Frames of War. She says deaths count differently, that not all deaths are equally grievable. And in 1918, gender really mattered too. The war with all its male deaths, sacrifices for military victory, those deaths were meaningful and it totally overwhelmed the pandemic deaths, which had a mix of male and female victims, indiscriminate, often random violence by nature, people being felled by an invisible enemy that was microscopic. It was a feminized way to die and it was, it was, not, um, it was not associated with valor and it wasn't um, valued in the same way as um, deaths in war. And we can see this phenomenon really clearly in one of the most compelling accounts we have um, from the pandemic. Um, it's written, it's a 1939 novella by Catherine Ann Porter. It's called Pale Horse, Pale Rider. And Porter was 28 years old in 1918. She was a reporter for the Rocky Mountain News and she got sick. She was living in Denver. She got sick, so sick that she almost died. Her newspaper friends had written her obituary. Her family had planned her funeral and uh, the hospital staff had abandoned her for dead and she survived. She didn't write about this until 20 years later, but when she did, she produced this novella, Pale Horse, Pale, Pale, Horse, Pale Rider. And what she did was she cast her own experience. Her protagonist is a young woman who is a newspaper reporter who is dating a soldier who's about to go off to war. And when that happens, uh, when right before he's going to go, uh, go off to war, she gets sick, very, very sick. And then he kind of drops out of the story and she almost dies and then she finally recovers. It's part hallucination and part realism, but it's this amazing way that it shows the conflict between a domestic story and a war story and why when the protagonist survives, she's subsumed by guilt. And when her boyfriend dies offstage in a faraway army installation, it's very anticlimactic and sad. Um, but I think that Porter's story teaches us a few things. I know I'm out of time. So one, is that we may have to wait 20 years to see the best writing about our current pandemic. Um, the other thing I think is that trauma on a mass scale is so massively disorienting that it takes tremendous stamina and courage and insight to write about. And uh, the truth is, I don't think everyone can do it. I think it's really hard. So, okay, I'm done. Great, thanks Joe and Jean. Um, so I'm thinking about HIV AIDS. So I'm kind of really jumping us into, especially the 80s and early 90s and kind of piggybacking off what Jean just talked about in reference to how literature needs time in order to manifest. I'm really interested in kind of waves of pandemic literature and how right now we might be in what's considered the first wave of COVID literature, right? We don't have COVID novels yet. We don't have COVID films yet, but we do have COVID TikTok. We have COVID poetry. And that really corresponds to what happened in the early years of the AIDS crisis, where there was this first wave of primarily poetry because it was this ready to hand short form that people could um, use to reflect their experience, um, especially their own experience of getting sick and dying. So I wanna think about that first wave and then use it to think about some questions that we might ask about COVID literature. So poetry dominated AIDS literature during the, early, the 1980s and early 90s, much, much of which was written, as I already said, by people who were already sick and dying or people who had been diagnosed as positive, which at that point in time was for most an almost certain death sentence. So people who knew that their lifespan had been shortened, um, you know, if they're in their 20s by 60, 70 years. Um, 
but other forms too, and I, I don't want to just kind of single out poetry, um, we can think of other forms that were these sort of fast forms that became really prominent. So those of you who are familiar with the graffiti art of Keith Haring, right, this is art that can be produced in a minute, um, and yet it's become this kind of amazingly iconic way that AIDS and um, HIV were represented in the 80s and 90s. And we can also think of, um, at that point in time, the camcorder was a really new technology. So um, documenting one's own experience via camcorder was a kind of preface to the way that we document our own experiences now in social media. And so there are these amazing documentaries like Silver Lake Life, A View From Here, and then Marlon Riggs's Tongues Untied, which combines spoken word poetry and sort of camcorder documentation in order to try to capture what HIV AIDS was like during, um, during this period. People turned to poetry and these other forms because time was short um, and because the trajectory of HIV AIDS, who was exposed, what treatments were available, whose losses mattered, was always political. So they wanted to kind of have a form that could be on fire with the rage that they were experiencing. Um, and Douglas Crimp, who's one of the, the best critics of this, of this period um, in reference to HIV AIDS, he wrote famously, right, that mourning became militancy. And we see that in the literature there, how mourning became militancy. One of the things this created in HIV AIDS literature, and I think also we might think of whether there's a corollary to how we're representing COVID-19 now, is that there was a tension in the politics of representing it. And now I'm paraphrasing a critic named David Gross. So there are all these kinds of reactions, and he really generalizes from straight writers who reacted to HIV AIDS like they're kind of bummed, um, and they defaulted to a sentimental elegy and an absence of the specifics of injustice that sort of contributed to and were resulting from the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, so a lot of these poems, especially by straight people, said that AIDS is a bummer and it was sort of symptomatic of um, a more kind of general human condition of mortality and death. Um, and queer writers, on the other hand, had a kind of urgency and their AIDS literature and their AIDS poetry really invested itself in kind of social justice and in fairness, political powerlessness, and issues related to, to sexuality, to race, and to culture. So that's what I wanted to say, but as I've already hinted, I think that this raises really um, important questions for us to think about as we're kind of thinking about how, how we're representing coronavirus and COVID-19 now. Um, so if we're in the first wave of COVID literature, what forms is that literature assuming? Um, is it poetry now? Is it TikTok videos? Um, can we think of Instagram posts as a kind of literature that is being used to urgently represent the present moment of our pandemic? Um, and then the other question, because HIV AIDS disproportionately affected um, gay and bisexual men, um, it, uh, women of color, um, sex workers, um, Haitians, um, uh, um, needle drug users. Um, so all these sort of already marginalized people. Um, we might think of whether COVID, which is disproportionately bringing illness and death to Black Americans, to Native Americans, and to Latinx Americans, if there are already distinctions in how BIPOC writers are representing our current pandemic and how white writers are representing our current um, dynamic. Um, so those are my questions or kind of the, the way that I'm thinking about parallels between HIV AIDS and COVID-19. Um, so thanks.
Great. Thank you, Travis. So I look at apocalyptic literature, which is speculative narratives that imagine the destruction of either a whole society or sometimes even a whole world. And one of the primary forms of apocalyptic literature is called plague narrative. It's one of the main ways that writers have tried to capture um, what Jean has been talking about and others have been talking about, which is the kind of ineffable force of these giant events. Um, so what I want to do is just very quickly give you a, a sense of what apocalyptic narrative looks like on a larger scale, say something about where plague narrative fits into that tradition, and then just make two points about really recent um, plague narratives. Um, so first of all, just to understand, before 1900, almost all apocalyptic literature was either about natural disasters or plagues. Um, after 1900, there were really three other new forms of apocalyptic narrative that started to emerge. One of them was war narrative and especially nuclear war narrative after 1945, so that by the time you get to the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, more than half, I would say, of all apocalyptic narrative written then was about nuclear war. Um, then you also have financial or economic apocalypses, which start to emerge in the 80s. Um, and then finally, most recently, you have climate change narratives, sometimes called cli-fi. Um, in terms of where plague narrative fits into all of that, there are a few really sort of distinctive things about plague narratives as apocalyptic narratives. Um, the first of, that, of, of those distinctions is that they're a form of apocalypse that imagines the world staying intact and the the human population dying off. Um, again, these are imagining horrible pandemics where almost everyone dies. Um, and in that scenario, certain, there are certain byproducts. What you find in literature ranging from some of the earliest to the most recent plague narrative is the idea that the few lone survivors get to live in a pristine natural environment or uh, even in a luxurious environment. And that's one of the things about a lot of apocalyptic narrative is the strange um, ambivalence that you sometimes see, uh, almost a wishfulness about a positive outcome um, from the disorder of the disease. Um, other uh, unusual distinctive things about plague narrative, predictably, people become the monsters, uh, you're afraid of everyone around you, um, and the most extreme, I think, version of this is zombie narratives, which are a very specific subset of plague narrative where the uh, the sort of infected are truly monstrous. Um, and then finally, uh, unlike something like nuclear war on the one hand or truly natural disaster on the other, plague narratives are in a gray area about whether humans are responsible for them or not. Um, and so you see right from the beginning with Joe's mention of sinners somehow being responsible to more recent uh, narrative moments that suggest that Maybe overpopulation has caused the, um, the events or uh, some other uh, sort of uh, human responsibility in terms of um, some racial group, for example. Uh, in one case, for example, even as early as 1826, the Turkish were held responsible for a plague in Mary Shelley's famous novel, The Last Man. Um, okay, just Two major points I wanted to make about really recent plague narratives written since, say, the late uh, 1990s. First of all, um, plague narratives tend to imagine a very quick end 
to the population. They imagine really sudden diseases, unlike for the most part, the way actual diseases tend to afflict people, even epidemic uh, conditions. And the two primary diseases that are represented in recent literature are Ebola or the flu. And the, I'll just say Ebola, I think, is one way that writers tend to exoticize uh, illness or epidemics and plague narratives. Ebola is a disease that emanates from the area around Kenya, for example. And um, sorry, my phone is beeping. Um, and on the other hand, the flu narrative tends to be treated as this sort of frightening element in our own lives, something that's local, immediate, all around us that can suddenly become terrifying. Um, and then finally, uh, the final point I want to make is there's also a tendency for um, plague narratives to present different ways our bodies are um, associated with power. So quite a few plague narratives in the last 20 years have been about uh, an illness that affects only one gender and kills off the other. Um, so all the men are killed or all the women are killed. And what does that mean for the society? Um, and similarly, they do explore the stakes of racial um, power imbalances in strange ways. And one in particular is there's an old tradition in narratives like the Mask of the Red Death or the Scarlet Plague to show really white America becoming like Native Americans as the term red implies in the titles. Um, that continues right into very recent literature, even something like The Hunger Games, where the characters are living by bow and arrow. Um, these kind of subtle references are all over um, contemporary narratives, and especially uh, you do see it in plague narratives. That concludes the presentations from our event, Plague Literature, Then and Now. This podcast has been edited by Mike Malloy. That's me. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be back in two weeks with another interview about literary theory.